podcast with me, John McDonald. Uh, I hope you've had a great summer break and you got to do lots of exciting things. So this first episode back is a follow-up to my conversation with Michael Bird, where we spoke about walking with God and same-sex attraction. If you haven't listened to that or, or watched the video on YouTube, please do that before you, you, you listen to this episode. It'll make much more sense to you then. But in this episode, what I want to do is I want to look at the scriptures, what the scriptures say, what, what is the scriptural evidence surrounding homosexuality? When I, before I was a believer, I had lots of, of same-sex attractive friends. I would party with them, I would go out drinking with them, I would go to clubs together, which to some people seemed strange because I was then and still am heterosexual, but they were my friends. And, and although I didn't share their sexuality, I enjoyed their company. But when I became a believer, it, it all began to change. As I immersed myself in that Christian culture, I began to change my perspective, change my thinking, uh, and saw homosexuality as, as something filthy, uh, unacceptable, sinful in the eyes of God. And as, I, as I've pondered this, and I've wrestled with this over the years, I've understood that, you know, at times Christianity seems to be focused just on, on getting it right, not doing it wrong, you know, doing the right thing, being right, get, avoiding it. How do we determine what's right and wrong? You know, most people would say, well, the Bible, the Bible tells us. But different people, different denominations, different cults, they all interpret the Bible differently. How do we determine who is right? Is this really how the Lord wants us to live? Is there another way to live? No, Paul says that we should follow the way of love, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. And he says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through verse 10. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And I have to say, in my observations, Christendom has done a great deal of harm because we've lacked love in too many arenas. And one of the arenas where we've lacked love in consideration is the whole area of same-sex attraction. Christendom has condemned and vilified same-sex attracted individuals. Some sectors of Christianity have physically attacked people who differ or disagree in many issues. Lots of issues. Think of, about the, the whole carry-on around abortion clinics. And often we've come across as hateful and vociferous, especially about people who are same-sex attracted. You know, my observations are that when we when, there, when there's a conflict between what we think is right or the chance to be loving, very often we come down on the side of what is right and we don't follow the path of love. You know, the, the Samaritan parable is, is, is reflective of that. Good religious people leave the man to bleed and die. 
while the one whom they revile and hate, he's the one who behaves more religiously than any of the priests. And I, I often hear people say, no, I'm saying this in love. And usually that's a precursor to some harsh criticism or rebuke. And there's no love involved in it. Please stop using that phrase because most of the time we are not demonstrating love. We're just trying to demonstrate our own moral superiority. And this idea of right versus wrong seems to be the default position of, of a lot of Christianity. And it serves as the foundation upon which we build our religion. What if we've laid the wrong foundations? What if our certainty of, of right and wrong is, well, what if it's wrong? <laughs> it would mean that, that much of what we built is not truly rooted in God, but it's rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is. That's quite scary. You know, the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 3, he speaks about being rooted and established in love. Not in doctrine, nor theology, or, or, or our shades of right and wrong, good and bad. Love is the foundation. Love is the foundation for theology, for doctrine, for our Christian behaviour, and it should be the, the foundation for church policies and outreach and ministry. And if what we are doing is not inspired by love, then we are not Christian, we're just religious. Quest for doctrine will not lead you into love, but I'm convinced love will lead you into not only correct doctrine but correct practice. Love, having love, as Paul calls it in First Corinthians 13, will lead you in true Christian living. Learning how to behave properly, that's not Christianity. You know, trying to get correct doctrine to enforce correct behavior. That's not Christianity. Jesus said the law was created to serve man, not man to serve the law. You see, Jesus' priorities when you read the Gospels, his priorities were people, to love them, to be compassionate to them. He preached and practiced inclusivism. He did not exclude anyone. All were welcome. Think about it. When, when he's walking through the crowd and everyone is pressing around him, he says, who touched me? Power has gone out from me. And the woman comes forward and she confesses that she's been unclean. She's been bleeding for years. Now her touch has made Jesus unclean, according to Jewish religion. But Jesus does not rebuke her for that. He speaks kindly to her. And as far as we know in the story, he does not carry out the ritual necessary for becoming clean again. And when the centurion comes to Jesus on, on behalf of his servant in Matthew 8, or when the Syrophoenician woman comes on behalf of her daughter in Mark 7, Jesus agrees to help them. And they're not even Jews. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't make sure they're religiously correct. He doesn't get them to pray a prayer to convert them. He just meets their need where they are. And as we mentioned earlier, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, this just reveals that how Jesus puts emphasis on orthopraxis. He didn't just believe the right things, but he practiced the right things, if you like. I don't like using that word right and wrong, but, but he practiced 
his beliefs. And it flowed out in compassion and concern, not in judgment and criticism. And his listeners in that parable had to admit the Samaritan's good actions, despite his identity as a foreigner and an unclean foreigner at that, his actions were superior to the belief and pronged behavior of the religious ones who passed by. You know, the Samaritan, the Syrophoenician, the Romans, these were people despised by Jewish society, and Jesus is painting them in a good light. While others may tell stories to criticize them, to put them down, to, to ostracize and, and um, exclude, Jesus tells stories to bring them in and include them, include the ones being excluded by religion. And this was the constant criticism of Jesus by the religious people. He kept doing the wrong thing. He would heal on the Sabbath. He tells the story of the prodigal father who does the wrong thing with his, his, his boys. He defends his disciples picking corn on the Sabbath. He, he journeys into Samaria and goes into a Samarian village eventually. That's unclean. He eats and drinks with sinners is the accusation that's continually thrown at him. You see, the focus of religious people on being right in every area of life to the, the finest, minutest detail blinded them to God's reality. Jesus is not critical or harsh towards those that the Jews consider sinners. He showers them with compassion. He lavishes them with grace and kindness. And in so doing so, he demonstrates the character and nature of God to every human being, not just to the religious good people. The emphasis we have on right and wrong and good and bad and black and white, it's a result of what we call the fall. It comes directly from the man and woman eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we focus on being right and doing right and avoiding what we think is wrong, then we will never be free from the curse of that tree. You know, prior to eating the fruit, those first humans lived in, in innocence. They walked intimately with God and with each other. The Bible records that they were naked and were not ashamed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. But after they ate, they changed. Their behavior changed. Their faculties were affected. Suddenly, they were ashamed of being naked. They covered up. They hid in the bushes. And what they did was they made a judgment between right and wrong. They decided that now being naked is wrong and was an offense to God. But God had seen them naked for however long they had been walking in the garden with him. They, they judged that, that what they had done and what they looked like now was bad. And God's reaction would be bad to them. But why did they judge God like that? Because... He'd never been like that to them before. And so they covered up and they hid. And yet God saw them that way every day. And he had called them in the very beginning very good. God's opinion of his children, his sons and his daughters, has not changed. He still looks at humanity and says, very good. It's us humans who judge each other as wicked or sinful or evil or not good or bad. God doesn't judge us that way. 
forever after that incident in the garden, we've been locked in this struggle to identify what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And we use these corrupted faculties of ours to determine right and wrong. And we use that determination to guide our living and behavior. And we use it to regulate other people's living and other people's behavior. That's what religion does. And I don't understand, how, how have we not figured out by now that this doesn't work? There's no difference between the Pharisees that we criticize and, and laugh at. And how did the man and woman live and behave before they ate the fruit? What was their guide? What, what were the boundaries from the beginning? You know, we're looking to put in place boundaries to keep people right. What were the man and woman's boundaries in the Garden of Eden? led by love. God is love. And he filled the garden with his presence and guided them in their living. Their boundary was love, which changed when they ate the fruit. And God is love. God is not correct doctrine. You know, the reality is we cannot understand God. But for centuries, millennia even, that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to understand God, but God is mystery. God is mystery. His being is unfathomable. We can only know what is revealed to us. But we're not content with what's being revealed. We want more. We want to discover more. And so we have all of these fantastical myth-like ideas of who he is, what he's like, how he deals with people. And he tells us, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And that's spoken in the context of grace. So he's saying, my ways of grace are far higher than your ways and your understanding. Don't try to understand it. Just allow yourself to be led by it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. What he's saying is, in other words, doing all of the right things according to our knowledge, according to our religious convictions, it's meaningless without love. Love comes first because God is love. And love will teach you how to live. Love will teach you how to care and how to be compassionate. And it will look different from the religion that you have immersed yourselves in up, up to date. That's what it's doing for me. It's taking me outside of the 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 small pond religion that I had immersed myself in to see how much bigger and greater God is than that small pond. And God is more concerned with our being led by love than he is about your doctrine, theology, or religious activity. What are we, what are we doing to, with love? Are we responding to love? You see, if we focus on doctrine and theology, then it's, it's highly likely that love will be a distant third behind those things. 
when it comes to caring about people and treating them like Jesus treated them, love may not be our, fact, our motivating factor. Our appeal will always be to what we think or what we have been taught is the right thing, rather than responding to what love is doing in a situation. You see, love will often contradict doctrine. <laughs> Look at Jesus. Jesus was led by love, and it challenged the establishment. It challenged their doctrine. It challenged their beliefs. It challenged their understanding about God, and they killed him for it. And the question I keep asking myself, and I, I want to pose this question to you, to you, those of you watching the video on YouTube, those of you listening to the podcast, will you allow yourself to be led by love or by knowledge? It's an important question. Don't neglect to sit with that for a while. I hope you have listened to my conversation with Michael Bird about his own journey and his wrestle with same-sex attraction, his attempts to get healed, if you like. <laughs> and lots of people, including Christian believers, have struggled with their same-sex attraction. It's not that, that every person who's same-sex attracted throws himself into it with great abandon. Many don't. Many spend years and years and years without acting upon it because they're wrestling with, how can I be like this when I want to serve God? How can I be like this and, and follow God? And people have, have tried all kinds of things. They've been to different ministries. They've tried different prayers. They've, they've had deliverance to try and become straight. And for the vast majority, it has not worked. So maybe there's something wrong with our ministry to same-sex attracted people. And even those who, for whom it appears to have worked, they're still careful around scenarios, around circumstances, because they know that they have not received a miracle cure and they can still be tempted with that old way of life. And yet, church continues to regard same-sex attractive people with suspicion, even with hate, and we've resisted their active participation in, participation in church life. I mean, I'm not talking about people who are, who are flaunting their sexuality, I'm talking about people who love God. And the dreadful thing that we've done to Christians who are same-sex attracted We've, we've excluded them, we've, we've made them feel unaccepted by church, we've, we've made them feel as though they're, in fact, we have actually literally banned them from leadership and ministry of any kind. And what, you know, we've come to, to, to many people and said, you're unwilling to change, you're choosing to be homosexual, you're disregarding God's word. And for most people, this is not true. Many same-sex attracted people have sought help to be changed. To become heterosexual and it hasn't worked for them. And the, the problem we have is when we see issues, we, we, we consider homosexuality to be an issue. And it's brokenness, it's, it's sexual brokenness, it's emotional brokenness. And for some people that may be true. That can be true that, that they've sought refuge in same-sex company because of what has happened to their hearts and their souls but for many many people that is not the case 
And so we try, we see this issue of, and we just assume everyone that's, that's homosexual is broken and therefore they need to be fixed. We want to fix what's broken, what's wrong, what's sinful. And when people are not fixed, we get frustrated, we get angry. And instead of looking at and reflecting upon our part in that, we throw it back on the others and we accuse them of not trying hard enough. And we've done that with homosexual people. You're not willing to change. You're not trying hard enough to change. We're doing everything. We're praying for you. We're ministering to you. But God never asked you to fix anyone. And especially not fix anyone according to your understanding of what brokenness is. Or your understanding of what is proper. Or your understanding of what is Christian. He's only ever asked us to love one another. When it comes to people whose lives are different to ours, we're asked to love them, not to judge them. And we're not asked to change them. Change is something that's in the hands of God. We can't change anyone. It's God who changes people. And this was the issue Jesus faced when he's, 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 he struggled with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They judged people according to their rules and laws. And they tried to change them or exclude them according to those laws and Jesus didn't because he understood and again I want to reiterate this changing people is God's job not ours our job is to love people and point them to Christ the rest is up to him and we don't like living with that uncertainty that risk if you like what if God doesn't change them? What if Christ doesn't do what we want him to do? Well, that's Jesus. That's God. That's their concern, not yours, not mine. Our job is to love people, point them to Christ, and let Christ do the rest. That's what Jesus is saying in, in, when he, he says to his disciples in John 13. In verse 34 and 35, he says to them, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. If we want to be true witnesses for God, love people. Because love was Jesus' priority, and it still is. And he's saying, they will know you're followers of me by the way you love. Not by the way you have correct doctrine, not by the way you judge or criticize, but by the way you love. You want people to see Jesus, to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus? Love. That's, that's he said. If, if you're a person who wants to follow the commands of Jesus, then there you are. A new command I give you. Love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And our thoughts on same-sex attraction are really informed by poorly translated and poorly tra interpreted Bible verses. Let's, let's have a look at some of those. We'll start in the Old Testament. And, you know, in, in some circles, homosexual men are, are regarded or, or referred to as sodomites because people say that Sodom was destroyed because of homosexuality, but they weren't. They were wicked men, 
but we're going to go on and look at why they were destroyed. Look at what it says in Genesis 19 about the people of Sodom. And note that homosexuality is not mentioned. Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 and 5 says this. Before they lay down, that's the, the visitors in Lot's house, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, Lot offers them his daughters instead, which is strange. If they're homosexual, why would you offer them women? They're not interested. Are we, are we being encouraged to believe that the whole town was gay or bisexual? Understand the culture. This was not about a bunch of gay men raping someone. One, rape is often used as a weapon, even today in wars. Straight soldiers, heterosexual soldiers will rape men as well as women. It's a weapon because rape is always about power. It's never about sex. We see a similar story in Judges 19, verse 22, in the city of Gibeah. It says, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, master of the house, bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him. And what he does instead is he, he, he gives them one of his concubines. They rape her and abuse her all night until morning. She, she dies. So it's not gayness that motivated them. Because they were satisfied to rape a woman instead. See, what motivated them was the prospect of doing harm, harm to outsiders. Their sin was lack of hospitality. In both stories, in Genesis, the, the attackers who are presented as male are offered women instead of the male guests, which does not make sense if the men are all homosexuals. And Ezekiel, when he speaks about Sodom, he does not mention homosexuality as, as Sodom's sin. He says this in Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Sorry. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Isaiah echoes that. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 through verse 17, this is what Isaiah writes. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless the case of the widow. You read that whole passage, it, it includes Sodom in there as well. Surely, if homosexuality was Sodom's sin, at least one of the prophets would have mentioned it. We have two major prophets who make no mention of homosexuality as the reason for Sodom's destruction or the reason for coming under God's displeasure. Instead, what they're condemned for is their lack of hospitality, their lack of social justice, and they disregard the care of strangers. So 
really sodomites are not homosexuals, they're people who don't give hospitality. They're people who don't love, who don't care for strangers, who don't give out of their abundance. To look after the needs of others. That's what a sodomite really is. And in the Old Testament, homosexuality is condemned because it specifically is connected to the religious practices of the pagan nations. Now, God continually tells Israel they are not to be just like any other nation. They're God's nation. They should demonstrate his character, his nature, as the followers of the pagan gods demonstrate their God's character and nature. Listen to this in Leviticus 18. First one through five. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall, not, shall, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. When we read the passages of Leviticus chapter 18 through chapter 20, all the prohibitions, this is the context we need to understand them in. They're in the context of not doing as the other God's followers do. Because their practices are linked to paganism and false worship. And it's only when we understand these, chap these three chapters in that context that we'll make sense of the, the prohibitions. They are being prohibited because they're specifically associated with Egyptian and Canaanite religion and practice. One of these prohibitions is found in Leviticus 18, verse 22. And a lot of the opposition to same-sex attraction is staked around this, this verse. This is what it says. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So male on male sex was called abomination. And when you just take that at face value in our English translations, it appears that God is condemning, condemning same-sex attraction. And the Hebrew word that's used here in Leviticus 18 for abomination is toeba. And it's always related to idolatry and idolatrous customs and idolatrous items like the golden calf. Strong's Dictionary says that toeba means something disgusting, especially idolatry or an idol or a custom or a thing. And when you read on in Leviticus 18, God explains the reason Israel should not do these things is because it's how the pagan nations behave. Listen to, to the writer of 1 Kings, chapter 14, verse 23 and verse 24. They set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles, on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And this word detestable, again, is toeba. And we see it connected to idolatry, to male, religious male prostitution. And this is under the reign of Rehoboam. He's following the practices of the nations around him instead of the statutes of the Lord. You see, in the Canaanite temples of the different gods, there were homosexual guilds, kind of like, I guess, trade unions, you want to put it that way. Both sex were prostituted, men and women, 
were both prostituted as part of um, ritual worship. Sometimes the sex was planned, sometimes there was just almost like a free-for-all orgy of, of, and it was considered worship. And it included heterosexual, homosexual acts. So when God is saying to the Israelites, do not lie with a man as with a woman, this is what he's referring to, the, these practices. In your worship, don't turn to the ways of the nations. Worship me the way I have shown you to worship me. You know, it's thought that, that the, the Egyptians, um, when they defeated enemies, when they won a victory, when they won a battle, they would humiliate their enemies by anal sexual assault. You see, because their god Seth or Set practiced homosexuality. The, the Egyptian tales tell of how Horus was raped by Set. Horus was Set's brother. And this led to the Egyptians understanding Horus as the inferior god. Set also has homosexual relationships with other gods and humans. So the Egyptians followed the practice of their God. And, Jesus, and God is saying to, to Israel, Yahweh is saying, do not do as the Egyptians did. Don't practice your worship. Don't practice faith that way. And the picture we have here is one of dominance and power. It's nothing to do with affection and love. It's dominance and power, and the gods set the tone, the moral tone, especially, for their subjects' behavior and practices. The gods did this, therefore the Egyptians practiced it. Now, perhaps they just wanted to practice it, and they set up a god who did the same thing. Either way, it's the tone of the nation. And sets rape of Horus, Baal, whom Israel are continually being condemned for following, he rapes Anat. So he's setting a moral tone for the Canaanites and their religions and their lives. So God is saying to the, the, to the Israelites, don't do as the Egyptians did, don't do as the Canaanites did, don't, don't follow their religious sexual practices because they're offensive to me, they're horrid, they're... Uh, they're disgusting. Because in Canaan, attending the temple and having sex with the male priest or the female priest or the, the, the female prostitute, male prostitute, it was considered the same as having sex with the gods themselves. And so this practice, homosexual sex or heterosexual sex, was seen as a religious experience and therefore a good thing. And God is saying, don't do it the way they do it. This is not religious worship. But when he, he's condemning male and male sex, he's not condemning homosexual, lifelong monogamous partners. He's condemning pagan worship being brought into the house of God. And one, one of the New Testament verses that's used to, to bolster the argument against same-sex attracted people um, in Paul's writings is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. And the, Paul, the word Paul uses for sexually immoral is pornos, which we get pornography from. But this word pornos is specifically related to male temple prostitution. It, it's, it's also seen in a, a trafficking sense, where it's slavery. So the, you have the idea of these male prostitutes who may be, be slaves and are without choice in the matter. So essentially they're being raped in the name of gods. So that's the idea that's included in this sexually immoral. And so when it says non-male prostitutes, that, that's not actually in the original Greek. It's not, the idea of male prostitutes is, is contained within sexually immoral and homosexual. Now, when it comes to the word homosexual, Paul uses the word malakos. And looking it up, um, Strong's dictionary says that it's it's a word that's not quite they're not quite certain what it means, but but it's used often in, in the sense of soft or fine. So in Matthew eleven and Luke seven twenty five, when it talks about the clothing worn in kings' palaces, it speaks it speaks about fine clothing. Then the word that's used there in Matthew and Luke is malakos. Strong says that it's figuratively a catamite. A catamite they describe means a young boy who was kept for the purpose of homosexual relations with a man. It also relates to a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness as a male prostitute. In ancient Greece and in, Ro in Rome, a catamite was a boy who had not yet reached puberty. The throngs is saying that this description of homosexuality is relating to boys who have not even yet reached puberty, catamites, because in, in Greek culture and in Roman culture, a catamite was a prepubescent boy who was the intimate companion of a youth, usually in a pederastic relationship. Pederasty means, is just another word for paedophilia. And all, very often it, it was against the young boy's will. You know, you, can you imagine the effects of, as a prepubescent boy, being penetrated by an older male? The trauma of that, what that would have done to a young boy. And art from the period shows the fear of young boys being sexually molested by men. It shows them frozen in fear, it shows them running away from them. And so when Paul's speaking about homosexual homosexuality and sexually immoral in those passages, he's speaking about paedophilia. He's speaking about male temple prostitution, not same-sex attraction. And we've created these beliefs that condemn and demonize same-sex attracted people, and we've done it because we don't comprehend the cultural and religious background of the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. And we formed a limited understanding of what the Bible is really saying and in the process, we apply our own prejudice. Listen, uh, Robert Cole, who wrote um, The Chieftain Cup and a Minoan Rite of Passage, and he wrote it in the Journal of Hellenistic Studies. He said this, some scholars think Greek pederasty had its origins in initiation rituals, particularly rites of passage on Crete, 
where it was associated with entrance into military life and the religion of Zeus. So again, we're, here we have this pagan religion practice being forbidden in God's people, rather than just saying, if you're same-sex attracted, you're condemned. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not what the writers of the Old Testament were saying. He's saying, listen, guys, these are the practices of the pagans and they're disgusting in the sight of God. Don't worship that way. Don't go to temples where you're doing that kind of thing. That's not how you worship God. Interestingly, the Greeks were of the belief that homosexual behavior for young men should end when you become old enough to, to marry and produce offspring. Because you see, I will come to that later. <laughs> and in Rome, blatant effeminacy, you know, we talk about being limp-wristed and all of that kind of thing. Well, that was considered effeminate, and in Rome it was unseemly. That was considered to be a Greek thing. Romans who practiced anal sex were seen as men and masculine, but the ones who submitted to it, they were seen as the effeminate ones and they were despised for it, even though they normally had no choice in it because homosexual behavior was only acceptable when you were the one doing the penetrating. And it was usually a slave or a male prostitute. You, anal sex with a freeborn Roman was, was seen as, as a heinous crime because they're freeborn. That's something that you only do with slaves and prostitutes. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul uses the word porno again when he speaks about immoral behavior. And this time when he speaks about homosexual, he uses the word arsenokoitis. And the Greek-English lexicon describes this as a male who engages as a dominant entity in same-sex activity, also a pederast. So again, Paul is speaking about a man who is the dominant rapist, really. He's a, he's a, a rapist who is having anal sex with boys or male prostitutes. So is it possible that people have come out of that lifestyle of paganism, they've come to Jesus, but they're still practicing this within Christianity? They're incorporating pagan rituals into Christian worship. And Paul is saying to them, don't, don't be a man who sexually exploits children. That's not how you worship Yahweh. I mean, this was a common Greek practice. Israel had been Hellenized with most of the surrounding nations. During those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the Greeks took over the known world. And it's important to understand that they brought their cultural practices and worships um, practices with them. One of which was male temple prostitution and pederasty or having a Malachite, having a younger man who you practice practiced homosexual sex with and whom was perhaps unwilling and Paul is saying you can't bring that into Christianity and so the prohibition he speaks about homosexual behaviors he's speaking about culture and religion being imported from somewhere else 
and being formed to the worship of God. It's, it's important also to understand the beliefs in the first century. So you, if you read um, the writer Philo of Alexandria, well, he and others believed that, that male sperm was in a, was a limited supply. It's like you didn't have it, you didn't have, you didn't keep producing quantity after quantity. You had a limited amount, and once you juice it all up, it was gone. And so therefore to, to ejaculate in sex with a man was actually hindering the perpetuation of the human race. And that was a crime against society. So that kind of homosexual life was frowned upon, not because homosexuality was necessarily wrong in their thinking, but because you were wasting the seed that could impregnate a woman, which says it doesn't say much about their concept of women as being breeding machines. Philo also wrote that, that being homosexual can make you effeminate, and therefore you can, it, would, it would make you impotent. So anal sex with a man would make you impotent and you couldn't sire children. You become a weakling in every area of life and therefore this behavior was a crime against society. Again, we're not talking about homosexuality in itself being wrong. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, listen, this can lead you to become an impotent and you won't be able to sire children and therefore the Greek race will be weakened by it in every area of life. And the homosexual activity in Greek and Canaanite and Egyptian and, and other regions of the area was usually and sometimes um, only ever carried out during worship sessions or, or religious parties. And the men would sleep in, indiscriminately with boys, girls, other men, women. It was all part of the, the culture. It was all part of the religious practice. And people would begin to import it from paganism into Christianity, and Paul is writing to them to say, don't do this. This is not the way of Yahweh. Just as the prophets said to the Israelites in, in the Old Testament, this is not the way of Yahweh. Don't do as the, the pagan nations did. And we see a continuation of this struggle of continuing to copy the pagan nations, despite God warning us against it through the prophets, through Paul, and Paul uses the argument of sexual sin, whether it's same-sex or heterosexual sin, to reveal their hypocrisy. Because they're condemning people for, for different sins, and yet here they are, caught up in this pagan worships rituals that involve homosexual sin, uh, homosexual sex, or, or heterosexual sex with prostitutes and unwilling partners. Are we guilty of this? Do we condemn people for certain sins as we perceive them? And yet we're guilty of so many other things ourselves? Are we condemning people for being same-sex attracted, but we ourselves are lacking in love and compassion and mercy? Are we lacking in Christ-likeness? Are we really looking at people trying to take the speck from their eye and leaving the plank in ours? These are serious questions we need to ask ourselves as believers, as a church. 
And it's difficult for, for most modern readers to translate what Paul's saying in this 21st century. The most same-sex attraction, most same-sex relationships, they are not in the context of pederasty or licentious parties, although some of these occasions do happen. But the, the vast majority of homosexual men and women are not interested in children. And they're not interested in the, the picture we have of licentious SM parties. I mean, heterosexual people have those kind of parties as well. So it's not something that's unique to same sex attractive people. You see, in most of the cases, these ancient cultures in Egypt and Canaan and Greece, they, they only saw homosexuality as a crime, as a crime, sorry, when it's perpetrated upon an equal or a superior. You see, you, the, the inferior person is always the submissive one, always the one who would, be, who would be looked down upon by society or reviled by society. And usually they were not willing partners. There's a, a, a man, Robert Gagnon, he's the New Testament professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in the USA. And he is of the absolute belief homosexuality is outright sin. No question about it. But he says this of Leviticus 18.22, and this is the one where it says you should not lie with a man as with a woman. He says this in page 130 of his book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, uh, Texts and Hermeneutics. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but so it's Robert Gagnon, page 130 in his book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. And he says of this of Leviticus 18.22, I have no doubt that the circles out of which Leviticus 18.22 was produced had in view homosexual cult prostitution, at least partly. Homosexual cult prostitution appears to have been the primary form in which homosexual intercourse was practiced in Israel. And if that's true, this, must, this is the understanding that, that we need to have as a basis for how we interpret what Paul is saying in the New Testament. Because Paul's religious and educational background is Israel's cultural history. <laughs> and these practices were common within the mystery cults and religions that people had been engaged in during the, the New Testament periods. And so in the context of condemning paganism, in the context of condemning idolatry, homosexual prostitution and paedophilia were regarded as, as idolatrous behavior, sorry, which should be forsaken because it prevented one from enjoying the benefits of God's kingdom. Not because they were sexually wrong, but because they were religiously wrong and con constituted idolatry. You know that word that Timothy used in 1 Timothy? Stenokoitis? Pederast? It's that when the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they translated Leviticus 18.22, you, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Well, that word abomination, instead of to echo, it, it's translated arsenocoitus. So 
So he says in Romans, Paul writes in Romans, chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And this little, this little passage, he says this in the middle of it. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And in, in this, this, this passage of scripture, twice Paul says that God has given people over to unnatural lusts. But he's talking about it in the context of false worship. He's talking about it in the context of idolatry. And he seems to be referring to specific people or, or groups of people, not just anybody. Because he, he uses the word they rather than you or us for all human race. He says, they know the truth, yet they abandoned it for unnatural lusts. I wonder if he's casting his mind back to the, the golden calf incident, because I believe they probably were having an orgy of sorts around the golden calf. They suppressed the truth. For unnatural lusts. And I, I don't even think he means sexual lust. I think he just means lusting after that culture, that lifestyle. He's speaking about people who deliberately suppress the truth in order to in, indulge themselves in, in gross experiences of the flesh under the guise of religion. That's the, the crucial point. It's doing it under the guise of religious worship. You contrast that with Paul's own experience. You know, he writes in 1 Timothy 1, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. See, there's a difference between Paul, who was suppressing the truth through murder and violence. He says, but I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Whereas in Romans passage, he's saying, they know the truth, but they suppressed it in order to indulge themselves. That's the difference between Paul and, and others. The difference between ignorance, ignorance and awareness. He blasphemes in ignorance. They blaspheme deliberately and intentionally. And when we read the scriptures, it's so important to consider the context. The letters that we read, they're all written by specific people in a specific time period with specific issues. And we need to know the background of the, the time, of the, the writer, the issues, if, as much as we can, to understand what the Bible is really saying to our generation, to our circumstances. We can't just put our religious understanding, our 21st understanding, into a first century mind. And I believe this is true of the passages that refer to same-sex relationships. First rule for believers is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. That includes same-sex attracted neighbours. That includes Muslims. That includes Buddhists. Nazis even. You know, there's no conclusive evidence from these passages that God condemns same-sex relationships and a loving monogamous situation. And that may really offend you, but I'm reading the scriptures, I'm studying them, I'm looking at what the words are saying, what the passages are saying, the context that they're in, and I cannot see monogamous same-sex relationships being condemned by God. 
However, neither do I see any evidence that God is advocating monogamous same-sex relationships between consenting adults. I don't see him saying, don't do this idolatrous stuff, but you can do it in a religious, in a, in a, a loving relationship where both are consenting. It seems that God is quiet on that issue. Perhaps God's not as concerned with it as we are. Perhaps God doesn't get worked up about it the same way we do. You know, people like the Westboro Baptists, they're, they're extremists in, in how they, they put those views across. But actually, the Christian church is just a watered-down version of the Westboro Baptist people when it comes to homosexuality. But God doesn't get worked up by it. When the Bible appears to be silent about something, in this case, same-sex relationships and the monogamous relationship between two consenting adults, when the Bible is silent about something like that, we should be wearying, we should be very wary about applying our own standards. Uh, and we should focus instead on just loving our neighbours, straight or gay, and leave the rest up to God. That, I think, is, is Christianity. Love your neighbour and let God do the rest. I hope this has been helpful for you. I know this is not an extensive study, but I wanted to present to you some follow-up from my, my conversation with Michael and where my studies have been at. Um, if you want to know more, go and look at this issue for yourself, not just from the perspective of condemning homosexuality, but what, read the stories of believers who are, who are same-sex attracted some of whom have not acted on it, some, some of whom are in committed relationships. See what the Lord says to you about it. Bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, next week, next or next episode, sorry, will be a conversation, conversation I had with Timo Hack, who once was the uh, leading the School of Ministry in a church in Sale, Manchester in England, uh, now relocated to Germany and ministering there as a pastor to, to Passion Group. And we'll hear from him in our next episode. Meanwhile, God bless. Lots of love. Bye-bye.